Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Right here on Shindig. And here are the guys who made it famous, the Rolling Stones! I want to welcome you tonight. I'm uh, Pastor Tim. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Liquid. And if you're just joining us, you know this is a new series, Finding Faith in Rock and Roll, Glimpses of God and the Greatest Hits of All Time. And early on, we realized there's really no more appropriate way to begin a series of that title than with um, one of the all-time classics by those rock war horses, the Rolling Stones. Newsweek called that opening riff Five Notes That Shook the World in May of 1965. And whether you're a fan of classic rock or not, the opening chords are undoubtedly familiar to you. They're played in huge stadiums and tiny bars, and, uh, and now I guess in church. <laughs> um, I can't get no satisfaction. The song was originally written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and it actually was released as a single in the United States in May of 1965. It was interesting because it was on the original Rolling Stones album, Out of Our Heads, that was released in the summer of 65, and it really was the song that put the Stones on the charts and catapulted them to worldwide fame. Satisfaction was an instant hit, actually gave them their first number one single in both the UK and America, and uh, Mick Jagger later said, said it was the song that, that really captured the spirit of the times and propelled them to worldwide fame. Now, it's interesting, because that was back in 1965, as you see their picture up here. Fast forward 40 years, and you'll notice a <laughs> little difference. Their popularity, though, has not waned. Uh, two years ago, in 2004, Rolling Stone magazine convened a popular uh, panel of experts, including former Beach Boy Brian Wilson, like Art Garfunkel, to vote on the top 500 songs of all time. And when all, think of that, all-time greatest songs. And when all the votes were counted, satisfaction, anyone want to take a guess, came in as number two of all time, coming in second only to Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. So it's a classic, no doubt, but beyond its recognizable riff, the lyrics really pose an ancient question that transcends decades and generations, and that is, where can true satisfaction, I mean, if it really exists, be found? I mean, the song's about the modern search for satisfaction or, or fulfillment, right? For lasting purpose and, like, meaning in your life. And that's something we can all identify with, the search for satisfaction, for contentment, for happiness. But more likely, if we're honest, we can identify maybe more closely with mixed observation that in the end, it seems like the search for significance is utterly futile. I mean, that's, the, that's literally the first half of the title, right, in parentheses, right? I can't get no, 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 no satisfaction can be found according to Mick Jagger. I mean, at least in all the places that he says he's explored. And they're the common avenues patrolled by rock stars, right? I mean, sex, drugs, money, fame. It's ironic that the Stones actually originally regarded this song as their critique of modern commercialism. Because when they first came to the States from, from uh, the UK, they were appalled by the crassness of American advertising. 
And in the first stanza, the lyrics, Jagger describes his irritation with the commercialism of the modern world. He's like, it's all about money. When I'm driving in my car and that man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information. When I'm watching my TV and the man comes on to tell me how white my shirts can be, he's like, life is all about money. That's the Stones' gripe. Now, the irony of the Rolling Stones' critique about commercialism is that they have become arguably the most prolific revenue-generating band of all time, right? From the red lips and tongue emblazoned on concert t-shirts, and you could get a Rolling Stones Visa card now, the Stones are crying all the way to the bank. Check this out. Last year, Forbes magazine ranked the Rolling Stones number two in the most powerful and wealthy entertainers in the world. In their annual po poll, uh, Forbes noted last year's their tour was called The Bigger Bang. It grossed $162 million by the end of 2005. At best, they had the prior record of $120 million back in 94. And in February, take a look at this picture. This is kind of interesting. The band appeared in Rio de Janeiro before an estimated 1.5 million people. Its largest audience ever in concert. Money, power, fame. I mean, these are, we're talking rock star riches and just like global popularity. And yeah, if you've ever seen them perform, how many of you have ever, actually ever been to a Stones concert? Anybody? Yeah, a few people are like, I'm in church, I can't admit that, right? I mean, <laughs> you still sense it that they mean it when they sing, I can't get no satisfaction. Because we all know money can't buy happiness, but it can buy a lot of pot. And uh, the stone. <laughs> And the Stones have tried that as well, as well as a whole menu of narcotics over the past four decades, right? Among other bands, they're notorious for their use of drugs to try to, you know, transcend, you know, the weariness of this world. And, like, when I look at their lead guitarist, I mean, I see it as, like, proof of God's merciful nature. Like, the fact that Keith Richards is still alive. You ever see this guy? I mean, talk about the effects of hard living, the amount of drugs and booze and who knows what coursing through those veins. It's like you half expect him, like, to light a cigarette one of these days on stage and just, like... Boom, spontaneously combust. But all the booze and narcotics aside, they've said, have led to a dead end. They're clean now. At least that's what the Stones say in their biography. They're actually now in their 60s, and they've been through rehab. So they're clean and sober. They're survivors. And I'm like, clean and sober, that's actually a, a practical choice, because, I mean, you want a clear head when you're counting $160 million, right? But it's as if they've had learned a hard lesson. Money, drugs, still can't get no satisfaction. So where else can we look? Well, the third stanza of the song offers the final avenue for finding meaning. Uh, these were scandalous lyrics in the 60s, right? I can't get no girly action. It's not actually girly action. It's girl with action. And in radio uh, programmers in the day, they kind of banned that and censored that from the airwaves because they said it's a symbol for a you know, girl willing to hook up and get it on. And, and that may have been very frustrating to these guys, Mick and Keith, when they were unknown in the 60s. But since then, they've found that women have, hmm, how do, how do you put this, kind of opened up towards them? and been a bit more receptive. Mick Jagger himself has had over a dozen wives and longtime girlfriends and a string of models over the years. He's fathered seven children, most by different women and models, and he actually has two grandkids now. So when you see him perform on stage, that's granddad, right? <laughs> so you still kind of believe it when he croons, but I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Sex money, global fame, wealth, commercial success. What's the secret to true satisfaction in life? I mean, where can real contentment be found? Because that's a great question. I mean, whether you're a rock star or a school teacher or a businessman or a soccer mom, it's a question we all face. What gives meaning to our days here on Earth? I mean, what, what is the point, actually, when you, when you come right down to it? 
The Stones raised that, that question in modern song, but actually this is an age-old question that people have been asking from the beginning of time. In fact, our parallel text for tonight is actually from the book of Ecclesiastes, which is found in the Pew Bibles, if you want to take one of those, or in your bulletin, you can follow along there. But um, take a Bible with you, it's on page 1068. We'll ask for a little bit of lights, Mikey, would be great, because what we're going to do through this series is toggle back and forth between the questions raised by the greatest rock lyrics of all time, and then how God responds to them in his word, the Bible. Now, here's the deal. Um, Again, we're pouring into the Bible tonight. Now, here's the deal. You may not be a Christian or a follower of Jesus, and here we are not here to arm twist you or give you some canned religious pitch. At Liquid, we're just people on the journey. We're, we're discovering what friendship with God is really like. I mean, here's the deal. I know that tonight you may not even believe in God. Maybe tonight you're here as an atheist or an agnostic. Well, here's the truth. You are totally welcome here. You are totally embraced and accepted with your, your questions or your doubts. And, and you, we actually feel really honored that you'd spend part of your weekend with us. But what we're going to do is hit some of these key questions of life. Ones that we all have. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, agnostic, whatever. And look at what God has to say about them. Because he's actually not silent. Especially when it comes to the question of what brings real satisfaction in life. Now, Ecclesiastes. If you found it in your Bible. This is a book about the meaning of life. It actually raises the question that the rest of the Bible was written to answer. Why are we here? What's the point? And I have to warn you, if you're looking for an easy answer about shiny, happy people, you're not going to find it in Ecclesiastes. This is actually kind of a dark book. And it offers an unflinching perspective on how most of us actually invest our day-to-day lives looking for satisfaction and fulfillment. Now, I want to read this first chapter of Ecclesiastes together because the author of the book, anyone know? King? Anyone? Solomon of Israel, he wrote this 3,000 years ago. This is a 3,000-year-old document. And Solomon, as some of you know, was a historical person who actually reigned when ancient Israel was at the height of its power and prosperity in the ancient Middle East. This was likely written around 935 B.C., very late in Solomon's life. And it addresses this very issue of finding satisfaction and uncovering the meaning of life. So let's read the first 18 verses of Ecclesiastes. These are literally verses and dive right in. The words of the teacher... Son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is Solomon. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the north or the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever turning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now we know where Sting copped his album title. Is there anything of which one can say, well, look, this is, this is something new. No, it was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. Verse 11. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. And so he concludes in verse 18, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Let's just stop there. Because this is an incredible passage from God's word. You don't hear a lot of messages about Ecclesiastes. But this is of a special note because it was authored by King Solomon. That's actually who it refers to in verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David. He inherited King David's throne and became king in Jerusalem. And some of you may be familiar with King Solomon's main claim to fame. He was, by all historical accounts, the wisest man who ever lived. You can find this actually in Second Chronicles. It tells us how Solomon, he was, a, he was the son of King David, and when Solomon ascended to the throne around probably 970 B.C., we're told that the Lord actually made him exceedingly great and asked him an amazing question. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Can you imagine if God, not a genie, but the living God appeared to you and said, ask me for whatever you want me to give you. What would you answer? Think about that. Solomon actually didn't hesitate in responding. He didn't ask for the usual suspects. He didn't ask for wealth or riches or fame or honor. He asked actually for one thing. He said, Lord, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead your people. This is in 2 Chronicles 1. And scripture tells us that when he asked that, when he, he responded that way to God, God was so pleased by his noble request, in fact, that he said, since this is your heart's desire, take a look at the 2 Chronicles since this is your heart's desire and you've not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you've not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given you. And I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had and none after you will have. So catch this, Solomon became not only the wisest man in all of ancient history, but also the wealthiest. He possessed unparalleled intellect, power, and affluence. I want you to capture this because it's a little bit different than the modern Middle East. He presided over Israel at the height of her status as the ruling military power in the Middle East. Okay, Nobody messed with Israel under Solomon's rule. The nation actually enjoyed a golden age under his leadership. Literally and figuratively. His kingdom spread from about the Euphrates River in the north to the borders in Egypt. And it was said that the only scarcity that Israel knew under Solomon's leadership was a shortage of wood with which to build carts big enough to hold the gold and the diamonds that his mines produced. You ever hear of King Solomon's mines? The entire Middle East was at peace under his rule because he was that powerful. Enjoyed unprecedented prosperity under his leadership. His reputation actually became so great that he gained international fame and recognition. First Kings tells us that Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Pretty smart guy. During his reign, Solomon actually wrote over about a thousand wise sayings. What do you call those? Proverbs. Proverbs. Good. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. They're actually called wisdom literature. Now, he wasn't just smart, he wasn't just loaded, he was blessed relationally. <laughs> I don't know if blessed is the right word, actually. It's he, uh, he had a bit of a sweet tooth for the ladies, particularly foreign women. 
and it eventually led to his spiritual downfall. King Solomon was worldly wise. Actually, early on in his rule, he sealed a pact with Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. And she was the first of hundreds of wives that Solomon married for political reasons. Over his lifetime, he acquired a myriad of harems and concubines and literally had his pick of any woman he set his eyes on. That's how powerful. You get this? In many ways, Solomon was the original rock star. He, he had money, fame, and groupies. All right? So understand what we're reading here, what this text is. This is a book written by the wisest, richest, horniest guy who's ever lived. That's true. And what's the meaning of life? According to the smartest, wealthiest player of all times, here it is, verse 2, meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's how he starts out his book that he writes. Whoa, whoa. Isn't a bit of an overstatement? Maybe he was having an off day? No. It's actually the brutal, honest truth. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever gotten up in the morning and asked yourself, like, what, what am I doing? Should, shouldn't I be happier than this? Like, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to work. I'm eating cereal. I'm brushing my teeth. And, you know, I'm trying to get my hair to do what it's supposed to do, and it never does, because there's a curse. I understand that. But... <laughs> But what am I doing here? And Solomon says, everything is utterly meaningless. Now, this word translated meaningless in your text is actually the Hebrew word. Hold on. I need to take a swig of water to pronounce this correctly. Chebel. <laughs> Say that with me. Chebel. And now I'm wiping off your phlegm on my pants here. Thank you for that. The word chebel, the Hebrew word chebel, appears 38 times in the text of the Hebrew Bible. Some translations say life is a vapor, a breath, a breeze, a fleeting mist, a vapor. In other words, you start off life sort of helpless. Think about this. How do you start off life? Helpless, eating soft foods, mumbling to yourself, wearing a diaper, having no teeth? It's pretty much where you end up as well, isn't it? <laughs> and in the middle, Solomon's saying, there's a few years that pass very quickly. And some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Vapor. Vapor. Everything is a vapor. A breath. A breeze that blows for a brief moment and then it disappears. What's the point? Life is chebel. Some translations will actually say life is frustrating. And it is. At least mine is. And if you start to put all these translations of the word on top of each other, you realize what he's getting at. He's saying life is short. It's fleeting. It's frustrating. It can actually be lived in vain with no point. You can live life apart from any sort of lasting meaning. I think the, better, the best translation of this word is, that's life. If you've ever gone, you are a Hebrew scholar. You know what life is? That's what he's saying. You're just being biblical. Everything is. Now, I have to pause and give proper credit here. I think Mark Driscoll out at Mars Hill Church, actually, first came up with that scholarly translation. I want to give credit to him. But, but you get Solomon's point, don't you? He says, everything is. You want to know why? Verse 3, Monday morning. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Think about what you're going to be toiling at tomorrow morning in a relatively countdown, eight hours, right? We all have lives filled with activity and hurry and worry and busyness. You go to work, you go to school, you raise your kids, you pay your bills. We work hard our whole life, and the question he's asking is why? What, what does it gain us? At the end, we die. They paint us up like a circus clown. They put us in a box. They put us in the ground, and whatever we had, somebody else enjoys. We don't get to enjoy it because we're too busy working for it. What's the point? It's utterly chebel, unsatisfying. 
Now, this is a key phrase here. You'll notice it says, at which people toil under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, appears 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a unique phrase that refers to life on the earth. In this present world, think, under the sun. Oh, okay, on the ground floor here. Yeah, not in heaven. He's solely looking at life in the earth. No God breaking in, no God revealing, no God speaking. Just everyday life on the earth under the sun. It's like if you, if you, you know, looked in the mirror in the morning and said, why do I work so hard and then die? What's the point? Where's contentment? This is the question that he's asking. And some of you may actually object at this point and, and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, I, I, no, okay, look, yes, the world is messed up. <laughs> And things are terrible, and yeah, everything needs to be fixed, sure, but, but, but can't we, you know, think happy thoughts? Can't, can't we be optimistic? Can't we just, like, pull together? Every generation has this incessant, naive myth that, what, that we're the ones who are going to finally fix things. In the 60s, when the Stones invaded America, right, everyone was naked and high and happy, putting flowers in their hair, and they're like, this is going to do it. Peace for everybody. Take your clothes off. This is going to do it. It's going to help. Now, my, our generation is not that naive, right? We're actually just a little bit darker. <laughs> our response is kind of narcissistic because we just kind of, you know, we, we, we critique the issues, we, we play angst-ridden music and, like, you know, just kind of complain and then actually do nothing about it. And if we can describe it, though, maybe that will help heal it. Nope, not really. In verse 4, Solomon says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Every generation rises up, we're going to fix the world. We're going to change everything. We're going to make it a better place. Every generation before us, good that we're here, because they were all dumb. We're, this is it. Evolution has hit its peak with us. We're here. And you know what Solomon's saying? You'll die, and the trees will still be here, and the sun will still be here, and the streams and the mountains will be there. You came from the dust of the earth, and to dust you will return. In other words, Solomon's sampling a lyric from Kansas. All we are is dust. Chabel. <laughs> vapor. The earth endures, you do not. Every single generation, and I'll be honest, I often think this, like, we are, we are the generation, significant, important. And literally what he's saying, it's like he's saying, the earth is an exercise bike. Generations tumble out of the womb, and they jump on the bike, and they just start pedaling like mad. Till eventually, actually, they die and fall off. And then the next generation gets on and goes, I got it, and starts pedaling. And, and Solomon's like, uh, you didn't get anywhere, but you could go ahead, pedal harder, give it a try, but I promise... There is no progress. Don't mistake movement for progress. He undercuts any myth of evolution and human achievement that moves us forward. I mean, it's like, think about the Middle East. There was war and hatred and brutality 3,000 years ago in the Middle East. Fast forward three millennia, 3,000 years. My, how things have changed. Ancient blood feud is now simply modern blood feud. Round and round it goes. Generations come, generations go. And the hard reality underlying all of this is that we're not as nearly as important as we think we are. In fact, no matter how hard we strive, we fail to make a lasting impact. In verses 5 and 7, he tells us that we should actually take our cue from creation. He says, look at the earth, wind, and fire. He's not talking about the 70s disco band here, right? He says, look at the fire, verse 5. The sun rises and then the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. It's just a cycle. The wind, it blows to the south, it turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. It's a circle. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from. There they return again. What he says is this, life is not forward linear progression. Life is a circle. And you object and say, no, we're moving, we're moving ahead. No, you're driving around a cul-de-sac, Solomon says. 
you're not going anywhere. Don't mistake movement for progress. We rotate around the sun, and in the morning, look at this, the sun goes up, evening goes back down. Water cycle, round and round, right? It rains, dew gets on there, it goes back up to the clouds, rains again, the wind runs its course. Life isn't forward progress and evolutionary movement, it's actually what you would call, in a circle, a rut. <laughs> I know, it's like, whoa, uplifting message. Okay, life is a rut, Solomon says. My life is a rut, your life is a rut. And as I got to the core of this this week, I'm thinking about something like, wow, he must have been from Seattle. This is a pretty depressing <laughs> lyric here, right? I mean, verse 8, he says, yeah, all things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. The honest answer is life, for the most part, is frustrating and complicated and cursed. So what we spend most of our days doing is trying to find a routine that doesn't drive us completely insane. We look for a distraction. A new movie's coming out. We listen to new music or, or we read a new book. Do you ever notice that life is like a crazy, maddening circle? Nothing is ever perfect and nothing is ever done. It's this circular rut that we're always constantly trying to escape. I see this in my kitchen after dinner, right? We slop the table, we wash all the dishes, get it all cleaned up, dishes in the rack. You walk out of the room, you walk back in the kitchen, what's in your sink? The dish demon has come, right? There's more dishes. You get a haircut. It looks good for, um, oh, eight or nine minutes, and then it's all jacked up, and you need another one. Look great last week. Your roots are showing. Sorry. <laughs> you mow the lawn. Next day you wake up. What do you know? The grass grew, and now you're thinking about, maybe I can get some guy to take care of this for me because I'm just, I'm just chasing, you know. All I do is go in circles on my lawn. How about your money? Finances. How many of you pay your bills each month, actually? That's what I thought. About half, right? <laughs> Use stamps, do it online, doesn't matter. We finish, I, when I do it, I do our bills. I like finish our bills. I'm like, everything's reconciled. It's like, oh, good news, bad news. Good news, whoo, we're done. It's all paid. Bad news, we're totally poor, right? But it literally feels like achievement, accomplishment. I'm like, this is so amazing to feel like I, I, all my accounts settled. Next day, what's in the mailbox? Bills. Life is that way. And people will object. No, 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 dude, that, that's painting a black picture. Life isn't a rut. I mean... Sure, small things, but we have causes, and we have movements, and we have isms. We have all these wonderful things we're going to do. We, we have a new plan. We have a new religion, new philosophy, a, a, something nobody's ever heard of. We, we have a new exercise, Taibo. You know, it's like we try to find something. We're educated beyond our intelligence. We're so smart. We've got a blog. We've got a new angle. Nobody's ever thought of this, and Solomon says, no way. It won't last. You won't be satisfied. You're not going to escape the cyclical rut. Verse 9, he says what? What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is, is there anything of which one can say, look, oh, this is something new. Well, it was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. He's saying you might think you have new ideas, but we don't have any new ideas. We take old ideas and recycle them, and we're all excited because they're new to us, because we all went to public school and don't know history. <laughs> it's like, it, every area, the ideas are done. It's why we don't have any new music, right? I mean, think about modern music nowadays, right? It's either a retread or a sample or a mashup. We don't even, we don't even have new fashion anymore, right? We've tried, every generation has tried everything from naked to moo moo. It's all been done. <laughs> That's why now, if you want to be creative, where do you go? You go to the vintage store and wear what? Old clothes. We just recycle old ideas and old stuff and think we have a new angle and we don't. Someone else tried it. We weren't paying attention. And some people will say, all right, all right, okay, okay. I, look, I don't have any new ideas. I don't care about clothes, whatever. I don't have new philosophies, but on a personal level, 
I am very important. I've been told. <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm gonna, I personally am going to be part of changing the world. People, people will remember me. If all goes according to plan, there, there may be statues, there may be monuments, there may be holidays in my honor. If all goes according to plan, there will be a movement because of me. Because I'm on the earth, things will be different. And here's what Solomon says in verse 11. Uh, no. <laughs> there is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. In other words, we're going to die and no one's going to know we were here. And literally, it's like he's definitely from Seattle, right? <laughs> because I know some of you are uncomfortable right now and you're like, no, that, no, that's not how it's going to be with me. Okay, let me ask you, who was in the obituary yesterday? Can you name a name? That's going to be us. That's how it works, he says. You make the newspaper when you're born and when you die. And in the middle, they completely ignore you unless you do something totally catastrophic. <laughs> Nobody's going to remember us. We're a very short-term memories. And he says, that's life on earth. <laughs> a bell. Meaningless. Short, fleeting. No new ideas. Everything's tried. Every generation, we thought we had a solution. Nothing happened. Now, you're thinking, whoa. <laughs> this is a depressing Thing And you're right, it is. If, 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 this is the, if this is God's songbook, Ecclesiastes is the blues, okay? But it's brutally honest. And Solomon did us a great service. Because when he discovered this harsh reality of everyday life, the smartest man looking back on all his years on the earth, what he says is, I didn't just come up with this. I learned it the hard way. He used all the powers at his disposal to find lasting meaning. I mean, if ordinary life is ultimately unsatisfying, where do you find satisfaction? Well, most people usually try one of four doors, right? And Solomon tried each with unprecedented gusto. In verse 12, check this out. He says, I, the teacher, was king over all Israel and Jerusalem. And here's what I did. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. In other words, I'm going to scan the earth, use all the resources at my power as the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful man on the earth and search for satisfaction like it's a science experiment. I'm going to keep track. I'm going to record it what I do. Well, you want to see the record of what he did? This is his little log. Flip one page, or actually don't even flip the page. Look over at chapter two here. This is fascinating. I love this. Look at this. Chapter two of Ecclesiastes. This is his journal. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? So verse 3. So what do you do? I tried cheering myself with wine. <laughs> he gets lit up, okay? In other words, the guy's first door that he tries, which we all like to try, maybe it's your third or fourth door, is pleasure, hedonism, right? What if I start drinking? <laughs> maybe it numbs the pain a little bit, but then actually, yeah, well, the morning after, right? The hangover always comes after a night in the town. He says, as I experimented, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, I wanted to see what was worthwhile to do under heaven during the few days of men's lives. So verse 4, he's like, okay, after hedonism and pleasure and stuff, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. He's like, I drink the wine, I become a winemaker. He built houses for himself, ambition, work, right? He's like, I got it. I got everything I need, but I'll do a remodeling. <laughs> A new addition. I'll knock down this palace, build another one. You'll build a second house down the shore after you finally pay off the mortgage on your first. Uh, what else? Uh, landscaping. We can upgrade. Throughout the course of Solomon's reign, he constructed several architectural feats that no one had ever done before. Beyond countless palaces for himself and his family, 
He built the Jewish tabernacle, the temple that his father David was prevented from constructing. So get this. Throughout his lifetime, he built multiple homes. He built a massive church. He led a massive nation. A whole kingdom he presided over. He built them all during his lifetime. And in the course of history, each one would eventually lie in ruins. So what does he try in verse 5? Gardening. <laughs> Look at this. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He's like, all right, enough of that. Back to nature. <laughs> he went Martha Stewart, right? That's how we do it. I love this because it's kind of like you see the genders here, right? Guys think like building their own empire or palace will bring satisfaction. And women think decorating it will do the trick, right? In verses 7 and 8, he tries the American dream. He's like, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I mean, this is the most, probably the most common and popular way Americans try to find meaning and purpose and joy in our life, right? Money. That is it. That's a Western thing. Every, now, you're like, well, yeah, Solomon, every year a fleet of ships had to bring him shipfuls, hulls filled with gold as a tribute to him. He was the richest guy on earth. I mean, he'd make Warren Buffett blush. And many of us are like, but dude, that would be it. As soon as I make more money, then I'll be happy. I will finally be satisfied. No, you won't. You'll just want more. Many of us work our butts off every week and every day, but for what? Is it worth it? Look at verse 22. This is amazing. Look at this. Flip over verse 22 here. Solomon says, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? Verse 23, all his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Do you ever get so involved in your work or career that your mind races at night? Yes, yeah, amen. I can't stop thinking about it. I just, I just can't get to sleep. That's, Solomon's like, that's your reward. That's what ambition gets you. Chabel. So he turns to that old standby, the last one, the fourth door, entertainment and sex, right? He is American. They're, these are related, entertainment and sex, you know. Look at the second half of verse 8. He says, I acquired men and women singers. No TiVo. He's like, bring in the entertainment. And they'd all come in before him, and he's like, no, it's all right, don't. And a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man, right? So catch this. He's like, flip the channels, amuse me, bring in everybody from Near East and far, same old, same old. Okay, bring the girls. Another, order another harem. Blonde, brunette, redhead. Oh, blonde, blonde nothing new. It's like Mick Jagger could have written this. <laughs> Solomon pursued sensuality with unabated gusto. Remember, this guy had thousands of women over the course of his lifetime, concubines, harems, foreign wives, but he still, he tried, he tried, and he tried, and he tried, but he still couldn't get no satisfaction. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. That's his conclusion. He's like, I invested my whole life. I, had, I can't even begin to tell you. Riches, fame, work, shopping, ambition, travel parties, whatever. 
The person who chases after that for satisfaction, for meaning, is like a guy in a field trying to grab the wind and put it in his pocket and take it home. As if you could grab or lay hold and master these things and like bring them home and bow down to them and have them be good gods who will bless you and finally make you happy. He's like, this is why life is often a confusing, chaotic, bent, crooked, frustrating mess. What a heavy burden God has laid on them, he says. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 15, where we sidestepped, Solomon says, here's why life is so tremendously frustrating. What is twisted cannot be straightened. The truth is, you and I cannot fix ourselves. We cannot even fix our world. I know, and some of you are internally rebelling, like, no, that's not true. We, we, we can fix it if we just try hard. Good luck. I dare you to fix anything. <laughs> I dare you to get everything on your car working right every day for a month. I dare you to fix, get anything fixed. It's cursed. It keeps breaking. It doesn't matter what it is. We can't straighten out the world. It's so twisted, so crooked, and we can't straighten it out. Why? Because we're crooked. We're twisted. That's actually his metaphor for sin. Crookedness. Twistedness. And here's the other problem, second half of verse 15. He says, what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, we don't even have the raw materials. We lack the internal resources, the grace, the wisdom, the insight, or the strength of character to actually make a substantive change. It's like, we got a short life, and it's not going to get done by us. Now, I don't know how you hear that, but that is depressing to me. I'm actually an optimist. And like you, I naturally think, there's got to be another option. Isn't there like another possibility? Nope. Verse 16, I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. He's like, I tried it all. Everything I could even dream up, I've checked it out. I'm smarter than you. I'm richer than you. I'm more of a dog than you. You can't compete with me because I lived the dream. I was the rock star. And so in verse 17, he concludes, Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. So his summary is this. He says, basically, every one of you here is going to choose one of two approaches to finding meaning in your life. Understanding and wisdom or madness and folly. It's highbrow and it's lowbrow culture. One is highbrow. That's understanding and wisdom, right? Some people think a highbrow lifestyle will finally bring satisfaction. So it's like, well, I'll get out of school, and then actually, I'm not wearing flip-flops. I'm going to get me a suit. An advanced degree. I will no longer live in New Jersey. I will work in Manhattan. I will go corporate. I'll, 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 eat. I'll, find out, I'll figure out what that sal- the salad fork is finally for. I won't, I won't drive my car. I won't drive a car. I will pay a driver. I will go to the symphony. I will pretend that large Italian women yelling at me is enjoyable. <laughs> I, I will eat good food. I will drink good wine. I will be a, a connoisseur. I will be an aficionado. I will use big words I don't really understand. And I will live the highbrow life. And Solomon's like, I did that. I went to college and acquired more knowledge than all of you combined. I earned mad money and dropped all kinds of cash and hung out with sophisticated people. And you know what? 
they're all just as lost and crooked and confused and frustrated as everybody else. Understanding of wisdom. So he says, I tried option two. Madness and folly. The lowbrow life. Like, so, that didn't work. So I saw my redneck neighbors and thought, well, they look happy. I mean, they may be drunk at three in the afternoon, not all that bright, but they look happy. Maybe that's it. I tried that as well. So I trade in my Armani suit, get a, like, a, like a whole bunch of NASCAR t-shirts. Right, you know, a trailer, take all the furniture, put it out in the lawn, don't know why, it's just what everyone does, I don't want to stick out, you know. Put up a big picture, you know, poster of like the Southern Trinity, Hulk Hogan and Dale Earnhardt and, you know, Elvis, like all there. Get a huge TV with a satellite dish, now my neighbors covet, and I watched wrestling and Springer all day. Bye-bye, Beamer, I got a Ford F-150. Don't kick my butt, Eric, just a joke, all right, now. I even, I even got fireworks. I light them off occasionally for no reason. Fired my, <laughs> fired my gun in the air. But you know what I found? Those people are all crooked, lost, and frustrated and don't know why they're here either. It's the same on both sides of the street. I tried them both, highbrow and lowbrow. Didn't make any difference. He says that's how each of us chooses. variation on a theme. But how each of us chooses to try to make life meaningful. Happiness by addition. More money, more stuff, more experiences, more pleasure, more wisdom. Nope, doesn't work. Okay, downsize. We'll go simple. Have a garage sale. Get rid of everything. That's, that's actually where the highbrow and lowbrow streams kind of converge at garage sales, you know? It's like this, you know, the, the highbrow people kind of like getting rid of their stuff at discount prices and like those who failed at the lowbrow thing are now like making a run. The highbrow are like, we can get this. Here's the big problem, Solomon says in verse 18. Can I just sum it up? Sorry. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. In other words, the longer you live, the more you see. The more you see, the more you know. The more you know, the more medication you need. <laughs> because the sadder you become. If you read the paper or watched the news last week, you know that they closed down flights in London and New York because of a plot to bomb airplanes with liquid explosives smuggled in shampoo bottles in the sippy cups of infants. I'm reading the paper last week, and I'm like, somebody gave time and thought and careful consideration to bringing down an airliner full of people with shampoo and the electrical charge from a Walkman. I closed the paper. I like wanted to cry. The more knowledge, the more grief. I don't know about you, but I don't want to know about all of the evil and wickedness and sin and war and carnage. Solomon says, I've learned everything that can be known, and it's made me nothing but sad because I can't fix it. I can't fix it. Folks, there's a big difference between information, diagnosing a problem, and transformation, beginning the healing of it. In his great wisdom, Solomon had information. I mean, this guy meticulously diagnoses the human condition, but he could not fix it. But here's the interesting thing. 900 years later, after Solomon, comes another king. Only this one didn't live in a palace. He actually was never married, never dated. He actually didn't even have a place to lay his head, no riches. This is the beautiful part. This is the good news. In Matthew 12, verse 42, Jesus says of himself, Now, one greater 
than Solomon is here. You wonder why they called him a madman. <laughs> Under the sun, on this earth, there is no hope of satisfaction, of deliverance, of salvation. But from above the sun, that is from the heavens coming down, comes hope. Who comes 900 years later? God himself. He's above over creation. He comes into creation as one of us. Into this crooked, frustrating, fallen, bent, collapsed web of life. He comes into it in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is tempted in every way as we are, yet is without sin. Everything that Solomon pursued, Jesus was tempted by, but he declined. And it's interesting because according to scripture, when Jesus was born, the first people who came to worship him were magi. You know what a magi is? A wise man. Wise men from the east. Wise men like Solomon who devoted their lives to pursuing the truth. What's the meaning of life? What's the point? Where's lasting satisfaction? Where do these wise men end up? They end up on their knees worshiping the baby Jesus. Everybody who devotes their life to honestly pursuing truth and wisdom ends up kneeling before Jesus in worship. And Jesus lives his life and tells us something amazing. Now one greater than Solomon is here. Here's his point. Solomon knew the problem, but he couldn't fix it. He knew the world was filled with sin, but he couldn't forgive it. He knew that people were crooked, but he couldn't straighten them out. He knew that the world didn't have the resources it needed to be the kind of place that was actually declared good by God, but Jesus did. Jesus came to write everything that Adam wronged and to answer all the frustrations articulated by Solomon and Mick Jagger because he was greater than them both because he didn't just put his finger on the problem. He offered a solution. Jesus did not come to this world to inform us about how bad it is, but to transform us, begin the changing and the healing actually in you that will eventually redeem the entire world. He came not just to share in our sorrow and grief and suffering, but to actually die for our sin and actually rise in conquest over it. And it's beautiful. Because what the Bible says is this. He says, we are so crooked and the world is so crooked and Jesus was so straight that he looked peculiar, so we killed him. We killed God. And upon the cross, something miraculous happened. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're told in Galatians that on the cross, he not only died for our sins, but redeemed us from the curse of a life lived in futility. Corinthians says that in the moment that Jesus gave us his righteousness or his moral perfection, I am dying so that your life can be totally different. He imparted to us all the wisdom so we wouldn't need to live as fools anymore. But I, but I try, but I try, but I try. If you'll just stop trying, all these futile attempts to find satisfaction that the Bible actually calls sin, humility, repentance, which means just simply stop and turn around and look at what you're doing and say, this isn't working. I'm going in another direction. And say, Jesus... I need you to fill my empty, hollow life. If you will simply do that, the transformation of your life can actually begin. Because we're all in need of transformation. Even if I haven't done everything that Solomon did, I've thought about it. 
And in so doing, I condemn myself with my own conscience. If you're married, you know, married men might think, well, you know, I've been faithful to my wife. I'm not like, perhaps physically, but, but you may have a harem bigger than Solomon's in your imagination or on your hard drive. We're, we're all guilty as charged. And the fact of the matter is this, Jesus gave his life for yours. What kind of God does this? The consequence of sin is death. That's separation from God. And Jesus comes into creation to liberate and redeem all who come to him in repentance. He, he didn't just die. He rose from the grave. He, he conquered sin and death and begins this reclamation project of connecting everything, your life, my life, the entire world, back to his father. When that tether was severed between God and his creation, everything collapsed in a web, and it's like Jesus is now untangling it and reconnecting us to our father God because life apart from him has no meaning. Life has no purpose, no goal, until creator and creation are reconciled or brought into friendship. The Bible calls this friendship with God. The Bible calls it eternal life, where you draw your life from the source of life itself. And every philosophy and every religion and every morality is an attempt to bridge that gap between man and God. But here's the truth. There is no hope of us rising above the earth. And so God came down here to be with us. Out of love, sheer love. He came down here to die and rise for you. You know, between 1970 and 1999 in this nation... The average income, when adjusted for inflation, went up by 16%. But divorce has tripled. Teen suicide has tripled. Depression is an epidemic. And we have a great depression, but you know what? It has little to do with our money. It is a poverty of soul. And that's why we turn to our diversions, entertainment, to escape reality. Why, why do we watch reality TV? Because that's about as close as we can handle to getting the real truth. We've even created a new word. This word didn't exist until the modern era, boredom. It's a relatively new invention in the last 50 years. We have time to kill. We have affluence and wealth, and so we get bored. Why? Because life is not satisfying. Life is not perfect because life is not God. And anyone who tries to squeeze full value, meaning, and purpose from this life is perennially frustrated, as the Rolling Stones made clear. I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, and I can't get no satisfaction. It's as if we have full hands and empty souls. There's a British historian by the name of uh, Sir Arnold Toynbee. And he said that of the 21 greatest civilizations in the history of the world, ours is the first and the only that does not teach its citizens why they exist. Because we don't know. We don't know where we came from. It's God. We don't know where we're going. It's God. We don't know why we're here. It's God. We've missed the big G on the eye chart. We go to school. We go to work. We have sex. We have kids. We spend money. We pay taxes. We drive cars. We get frustrated. We get happy. We get sad. We get busy. And we don't know why. And then we die because, as Solomon said, life moves quick. And you blink. And it's gone. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, define life forward and live it backwards. In other words, you've got to know why you're here and then organize your life towards that purpose. And there are only two options. The goal is us or the goal 
is God. And as soon as you worship God, as soon as you know God, as soon as you are reconnected to God, you know what? You actually have diminished expectations for what life is going to bring you. Life actually doesn't need to be perfect. Jesus has not completed his reclamation project of redemption. You may suffer tremendous hurt or wounds in this life. You, you, you may have cancer or illness in this life, but you will receive a resurrected new body through faith in Jesus Christ. You may be crippled in this life, but you will walk into his kingdom. All things, relationships made new, will be made new, perfect. And in the meantime, you can then actually eat and drink and work and laugh and love and play and pursue God with all your might and find satisfaction because those things are being added unto you but they're not the source. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. You can be rich. You can be smart. But you'll never know satisfaction until you meet Jesus. And then your life will have a measure of joy and purpose because it's been reconnected to the God who gave it to you. Significance is overrated. We don't need to be significant. We don't need to be successful. We don't need to be rich. We don't need to be smart. We just need to be repentant, and we need to be loved. That's all we need. All you need is love. Yeah, we take our cue from the Beatles as well. This is a book of profound repentance of an experienced man looking in the rearview mirror of his life and trying to tell you something. And it's an invitation to each of us. Stop running from God. Go back to him. God loves you. God has come here for you. God has redeemed you. You don't, you don't need a thousand women. You just need Jesus, and he will give you eyes for your life. You don't need a billion dollars. You just need Jesus, and he will give you your daily bread. It's an issue of satisfaction, and there's a big difference between stuff and satisfaction. Stuff you can get on your own. Satisfaction comes from God alone. One greater than Solomon is here. Turn to him. Turn from yourself. Turn from your sin. And return to God. We have reason for much joy. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Let's take some time here. Maybe this is your first time here. And God's doing something. He's spoken to you. And actually tonight's the night you take a first step back towards this God who loves you, who misses you. You've been trying so many things. You try and you try and you try and you've spent your life pursuing something or someone found them unsatisfying and you're on to the next and now you're tired of trying. Maybe you're finally ready to try Jesus Christ. A friendship with God through Jesus is the goal of our entire existence and you'll be restless until you give your life to Christ. You, you can be reconnected even tonight to God by just simply inviting him to do it. You have to, it starts with humility. You have to admit your brokenness. All the ways you've tried to find meaning and purpose apart from God and, and just ask him to forgive you. He will. He will do more than that. You can pray, Jesus... I invite you into my life. Not as an add-on. I want you to be my life and begin the transformation 
of me.